Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Grassroots Chronicles. I am your co-host, Carlos Militaller, a.k.a. Mr. Grassroots. And along with me is Caleb Stokes, a.k.a. Mr. Communication. And joining us, as always, our producer, Jonathan Torres, with the Yard Sign Network. In the oh, next two fellas. episodes... Oh. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's going to be a spicy one. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, it is. And this is uh, part one of a uh, two-part show. We're going to be talking about focusing on Sal Alinsky's rules for radicals and how he was instrumental in building communities for his causes. He is considered the first political community builder. I also want to remind our audience that we do not endorse communities or political parties. We are here to inform and educate individuals on how they can change their community from the grassroots level. And with no further ado, Caleb, take us into the rules of radicals. Absolutely. Thank you, Carlos. And again, you're listening to the Grassroots Chronicles at the Yard Sign Network. Mr. Producer Jonathan Torres, we appreciate you. Carlos, I appreciate you. And let's talk about Saul Alinsky. So like Carlos said, um, first and foremost, community organizing has been a part of uh, America since the dawn of the republic. You can go back to uh, elections in the early 1800s and how the Whig Party was making sure that they would organize and get more Whigs to the polls to, to vote for their candidate. Community organizing has been around uh, for 250 plus years. However, Saul Alinsky is recognized as really being the first community organizer, at least in the modern sense. And like Carlos said, we're not here to advocate, endorse, condone any type of politics, any campaigns or anything. But it is worth noting that Saul Alinsky was a radical progressive, 100 percent. And he created what he considered to be a Bible of activism for the left. And today we want to kind of go through at least the first half of all of his rules for radicals uh, and kind of unpack those, see exactly how they've been used by both the left and the right in the past and in the current, uh, and kind of um, unpack each rule to see exactly how we can utilize them on a grassroots level. And if we don't want to utilize them, at least be aware of what the opposition might actually be doing themselves. Uh, Saul Alinsky, like we said, was a radical. Uh, he very much believed that the ends justify the means. Um, he uh, was very progressive and pushed that agenda as often as he could. He actually was pen pals with Hillary Clinton. She wrote her senior thesis on Saul Alinsky, and they wrote back and forth until uh, his death um, later, I believe, in the 1970s. But Saul Alinsky has 12 or 13 rules, depending on who you ask. Uh, and let's begin with rule number one on Uncle Saul. Uh, he says that power is not only what you have, but it's what the opposition thinks you have. One more thing on Saul before we dive into this. Saul Alinsky never said opposition. He always used the word enemy. We don't want to use that. They're not our enemy. They're just the opposition for this particular issue or in this particular campaign. We're going to wind up working with these folks who are the opposition currently and other campaigns down the road. So they are not the enemy. They are the opposition. So every time Saul uses the word enemy, we're going to, to uh, instead insert opposition. So he says power is not only what you have, but it's what the opposition thinks you have. For me, this takes me back, takes me back. We can go back to 1946. Uh, a young, well-connected Navy veteran was running for Congress in the 11th District of Massachusetts. His name was John F. Kennedy. 
And of course, he was well-funded as well by his father and his family's fortune. And what John F. Kennedy was able to do was to scare off opponents in the Democratic primary. He opened over a dozen offices throughout uh, the 11th district. He kept the lights on all night long. The blinds were closed, and up top it said John F. Kennedy for Congress. And a narrative was created all around Massachusetts. Oh my gosh, look at this young kid. He's so uh, well-connected. He has all the funds necessary to win this race. They have all these offices. People are coming in and out. I'm going to drop out of the race. And a lot of his opponents did drop out of the race. And three-quarters of those offices were empty. <laughs> there was no one in there. The lights were just on 24-7. But that's the idea of the power. Uh, the power is not only what you have, but it's what the opposition thinks you have. Carlos, uh, you have been involved in politics for almost three decades. Uh, can you think of any examples where this rule uh, is something that you've seen or worked with? Oh, absolutely. I think it's the perception is reality, especially in grassroots. If you are able to give the perception that you have an actual army versus a platoon, uh, that can definitely be a factor to the opposition. Um, also, with the, you, you, you said earlier that uh, Sal likes to refer the other side to enemies. He was very much about us versus them, you know, dividing the 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 the, the, um, the territory quickly. Um, I don't think he was a believer of um, Frederick Douglass that will work with anybody to do good and no harm. But yeah, no, the perception is 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 very important. Um, I've seen all of a sudden campaigns that nobody really gave it a chance in the beginning and overnight the whole city's covered in signs wow the perception is you know x about the candidate you know uh also if you show up to to an event with say 30 people it, maybe those are all the people you have but it, it shows a number right or the perception when you take a picture that the room is full and if you were to back up the you know the reality is that the room's not full so it's all how to how to manage that. And Sal Linsky was very good at that perception. And he was well known. He used it to his advantage everywhere. And it was a threat because if you, if Sal Linsky dropped into your city, you knew he had things. You At least you perceived that he had an incredible organization and there was tons of people going to show up and protest. And in some cases, not really. But just having that reputation and giving that perception was just enough for him sometimes to, to get what he needed. And that's a good point. Saul Alinsky was so good at what he did. He was really kind of a gun for hire. Uh, he, he traveled the country. He went to so many different um, movements and cities, whether it was in Rochester or Buffalo or Detroit. He would be hired by um, people running for public office. He would also be hired by community churches who were trying to engage mm -hmm. social change um, in their neighborhoods. Uh, he was a busy man. And so these aren't just ideas that he wrote down in a book. These are things that he actually put into practice and found success utilizing. And again, we don't have to agree with every single one of his rules. However, we can pick and choose certain ones, uh, similar to what Roger Stone has done in the past few years. He's created his own list of Stone's rules, but it was inspired by Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals. And because Roger Stone sort of uh, took that mantle, uh, Donald Trump utilized a great deal of Saul Alinsky's tactics in his campaign, really 
in 2016 more than any other campaign. Saul Alinsky's second rule for radicals, never go outside the expertise of your people. Carlos Jonathan and I used to work for an organization that really embraced uh, economic ideas. We'll just say it that way. Uh, so a lot of the conversations that we were having when we were knocking on doors or uh, talking to elected officials, it was revolved <laughs> around economic issues. Uh, and Carlos himself in Boca Raton had a, a large number of activists who were really happy making phone calls talking about all of these different issues. And then the organization for whom we worked um, pivoted a little bit and took up the issue of immigration. Uh, and this was something that was a bit overwhelming and intimidating for many activists, including Carlos's activists down in Florida. Uh, again, never go outside the expertise of your own people. What happened is our organization began asking folks to make phone calls and knock on doors talking about immigration rather than the issues with which they were more familiar and with which they were more comfortable. And what winds up happening when we see this is it scares off volunteers. It scares off potential support when you ask them to do something outside of their expertise. Carlos, uh, you, you did an excellent job retaining so many volunteers and activists in that office. Uh, did you feel that you were having to fight um, almost against these sort of insecurities that a lot of your volunteers were feeling? Uh, I, absolutely. Uh, you know, every issue is not for everybody. But I felt it was my role to try to explain to them the importance and to break it down. But the most important factor is that they feared is they didn't feel they were good enough to explain the topic or defend it. So we would have conversations in, um, you know, uh, literature to break it down to a layman's term and how it affected them. So if they were at the door, I'm a firm believer that you could have a good issue. But it's more impactful when you are talking to somebody, either, you know, personally or at the door or on the phone, how does that issue affect you personally? Right. And then you continue to go the, the scope. But and that's what I try to relate to them. See, how does this affect you? How does it affect your neighbors? That gave them confidence, gave them a small platform, to, a foundation to be able to stay in there and at least initiate a conversation. Um, and they always also what's important is they always, always had support. Um, but for me or the organization in case they needed more information or if they couldn't explain something, we were only a phone call away, you yeah. know, to make sure that. And it's, it's a learning process for everybody, including ourselves, because sometimes all the subjects that we deal with, we're not experts. We're not policy. I mean, when you're in grassroots, you're in grassroots. You're not policy. And uh, it's our job to try to bring it down to a level where people can understand. But if, the most important part is making it relatable and how it's important. So if, if it's not something, an issue that the person be on the other side of the, uh, the other line uh, or behind the door, but at least you get to let them know how it's important to you. Yeah. And Carlos, you've been working in, in grassroots activism for years. So it, um, you know, retaining folks that felt uncomfortable is something mm -hmm. that you've done before. But if we can avoid it, let's avoid it. So again, never go outside the expertise of your own people. Rule number three, Saul Alinsky, whenever possible, go outside the expertise of the opposition. Um, an example I have from this is in a previous uh, role, I was working in San Angelo, Texas. There was a group of activists in San Angelo who really wanted to defeat uh, a tax hike via a school bond. And uh, I met with them, 
you know, probably half a dozen times to go over a uh, grassroots game plan before the referendum election. And what was great is that the opposition in this case had no experience with grassroots activism. They were individuals who usually um, wrote checks and made endorsements and found people to run for office rather than actually get on the ground and pass out flyers and hold protests and street theaters and rallies uh, and um, other different direct action uh, methods. And what happened is we trained a lot of these folks to go out and knock on all of these doors, something that they knew well. They, they had been involved in grassroots activism for years and years, and they had defeated uh, several different referen referendums previously and had experience doing this. The opposition did not. And uh, at the end of the day, that school bond was defeated by two votes. Uh, and that was because the individuals who were fighting the school bond, they dug in into what they knew. And that was grassroots activism. And uh, they went outside of the expertise of the opposition because the opposition only knew how to write checks and endorse candidates. Carlos, do you have uh, an example from your experiences where you've witnessed this rule, whenever possible, go outside the expertise of your opposition? Yeah, I think it's a great way of putting the other side at, at a point of unease. Um, and if, as, this, as the terminology goes, if you can put them a little bit on their heels uh, and make them react to what you're doing, it takes them away from their game. Yeah. Um, so definitely, if it, at any time there's issues or something that you can question it, put it out there and have them explain. And I think Alinsky uh, was good at that. You know, have have the other side continually to explain, because when you're explaining, you're not pushing your message. You're having to, to obviously, you know, to take, you know, to, to explain. And he was good at putting people on their heels. Um, and he was very um, direct about that. And he was very strategic. He really looked at his opposition. That's another thing you have to give him credit. He knew his opposition inside out. That's why he was able to to do this. Um, and so he, he he was he was a master at, at, at these rules and consistently. And that's why he was so successful to acquire what he was trying to acquire. Absolutely, Saul Alinsky, Rules for Radicals. You're listening to. The Grassroots Chronicles at the Yard Sign Network, wherever you get your podcast, Apple iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, search us. We are there, Grassroots Chronicles at the Yard Sign Network. Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, rule number four, make the opposition live up to its own book of rules. Great example of this. If you're on a campaign, you're working, you're running the campaign, maybe you're the candidate. And you hear that the opposition says, I am going to respond to every letter that's written to me. <laughs> if you're a, a potential constituent and you write me a letter, I promise I'm going to sit down and write one back. Well, <laughs> great. Then what am I going to do? I'm going to recruit like three dozen college kids, give them uh, pizza and Diet Coke and say, hey, guys, this Saturday afternoon for the next three <clears throat> hours, we're going to write as many letters as we can. To, to our opposition, and what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to live up to their own book of rules. They're going to have to sit down and respond. And that candidate is going to be riding and riding until the carpal tunnel kicks in. And most importantly, they're not going to be campaigning. They're going to be writing letters. Rule number five. This one, Carlos, I know you love. Saul Alinsky's rule number five. 
And it's kind of a three-part, but it's ridicule is a man's most potent weapon. Ridicule is a man's most potent weapon. It is almost impossible to counteract ridicule. It infuriates the opposition who then react to your advantage. We all know currently in politics who the king of ridicule is. It's Donald Trump. Lion Ted, Lil Marco, Crooked Hillary, Crooked Hillary, Low Energy Jeb, Sleepy Joe, Bird Brain Nikki, whatever it is, Donald Trump is the best example of how ridicule can work. Now, I'm not a fan of this rule at all. I, I don't like the idea of, of doing personal attacks. However, under certain circumstances, they they unfortunately can work. Uh, and Donald Trump is really brilliant at creating a negative narrative, even if it's a false narrative, and finding ways for people to repeat it so easily, almost to the point where it's a slogan on a hat. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's still ridicule. And individuals react very personally when they're, they're being attacked, their family's being attacked, their friends are being attacked. And what happens is I'm going to wind up defending my family and defending my friends rather than promoting my positive agenda. And that's how ridicule is, unfortunately, um, an effective rule for Saul Alinsky. Well, and Caleb, let me jump in here because, uh, you know, while uh, Trump is obviously uh, the biggest target when it comes to this particular point, you know, in terms of today's uh, political discourse, I mean, this tactic is really as almost as old as democracy itself. I mean, you know, famously, I mean, at the at the birth of our nation, some of the insults that were and and uh, that were being thrown back and forth between candidates were so bad that they were willing to duel each other, you know, to the death. And uh, and and so you know, it's amusing when you go back into some of these historical texts and realize why, you know, to the extent that you know some of this name calling would get to. Um, but you know, I think it it it. Un- really just kind of goes hand in hand. I mean, whether, you know, just it just depends to what degree, right? Because, you know, whether we call someone a carpetbagger or if it's, uh, you know, the, the, the tax man, right? Because they're going to raise your taxes or, you know, so even at its lightest degree, you know, it's such an easy way to just attach a label to uh, your opposition and have them uh, have to defend themselves. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I have to agree with you, Caleb. Um, <clears throat> I'm not a fan of it either, um, but it, it does work. And it's been working since the beginning, like Jonathan just said, since the beginning of our nation uh, to put somebody with a tag. Um, and Trump has been, you know, very successful at that. Uh, not my preference um, when it comes to discussing politics with others uh, when you're in a campaign. But it does work for him. It does work for a particular part of the uh, um, of the constituency, the people who vote. Um, and yeah, I have to give credit where credit is due, and he's pretty much the Sal Linsky um, of the <clears throat> of the two thousand era in politics with putting people with labels. And they and, and unfortunately, unfortunately for him, they do stick. As silly as they may sound, they stick. And so, and and, not, and and it's not just a labeling, it gets in the psyche of the opposition because now the opposition is thinking, 
I'm not that person. And it starts to alter. And it could also, you know, trickle down to the campaign in many ways. Um, but anyway, I'm not a fan of it. But yes, he's he's very good at it. Uh, and like you just name a, a, a list of, of, of nicknames or, or or labels he put on people. Uh, <clears throat> and I think in some cases, people remember more the label than who the candidate is. And it's interesting when you go back to the 2016 election and the Republican primary, Donald Trump went after Jeb Bush on low energy, low energy, mm-hmm. low energy. And there was one of Jeb's last debates. He actually brought energy and Donald, you know, commended him on that in a joking manner. But um, Jeb's whole focus in that debate was showing energy. It put him in the defensive mode rather than proposing what he can do for the country to to help everyone and make us prosper. Instead, he was just saying, oh, I need to seem excited. Um, But yeah, ridicule, man's most potent weapon. We're not fans of it necessarily, and I'm really not a fan of it locally. All of these rules you can absolutely utilize if you're running for local office, but if you begin to ridicule someone in a city council, town council, county commissioner race, Everyone kind of knows each other. And, uh, you know, you're, you're ridiculing someone who lives down the street and it's your neighbor and it doesn't come off in the best light. So on a local level, definitely ignore this rule. All right. Saul Alinsky, his rules for radical. Rule number six, a good tactic is one your people enjoy. Carlos Muletaller is fantastic utilizing this rule. Uh, Carlos, I remember you had a field office in Boca Raton, and you had a leaderboard up on the wall, and it was fantastic. So it was for all these different volunteers and activists who were coming in. They had a certain number of doors that they wanted to knock and certain success rates that they had, and you had that leaderboard up on the wall, and you had prizes going to individuals, and you had titles and, and different things folks could take home, and it it was absolutely fun. It was a good tactic that people actually enjoyed. You could you could also say street theater uh, mm-hmm. or some type of public <clears throat> rally and public protest where your folks can get together, eat some lunch, go out, listen to music, hold signs and wave. It's fun. Have fun. And Carlos, you had a blast and your folks had a blast competing on that leaderboard. It, it was fun because at the end, you know, all human beings, even though they say they're not competitive, um, they don't want to be last on a list. So it was always that, you know, battle. I don't want to be last. And we made it fun. I mean, we had different prizes. And when I say prizes, I meant like, you know, little little trophy cups you buy at the dollar store or something, you know, just a little thing for giving them and uh, appreciating them, giving them a little certificate, making it public, somewhat public, you know, within the group, who's the leader, you know, who came from behind, who was the best that day in various things. Um, even though people a lot of times don't want recognition, it, it's nice. And I recommend to do that and make it fun. And not just those type of things, but if you have a group of volunteers who've been with you for a while, whether they're phone bankers or or door knockers or a combination of, try to see if you can take them out like a like a, a night of bowling, you know, maybe go see a movie, um, putt-putt golf, depending, you know, something that they can all share together as a group. Um, because it's not just the work and the camaraderie, that it's important, but also afterwards, you know, that's when the, the real fellowship begins and it really starts to build a team. So it's not just you as a leader, but you, you are making your team gel. They're getting to know each other. Um, and that's important and make it fun. I make it something fun. It doesn't have to be every week, 
something once a month, once a couple of months, uh, and let people know in general who who's who's done the best that day. You know, who's who, who made the most doors, who got the most takes, most phone calls, uh, or who spent the longest time working in the uh, in the office for whatever reason. Because there's multiple things in the grassroots team, but. Uh, it's important that you share that information and recognize that. Uh, and people will continue to come. And not only that, but they, they'll become your biggest recruiters for others. Because what are they going to do? They're going to go out and tell others, hey, man, we have a blast at the Boca Raton office, right? I mean, we do this, we do that, you know. Uh, and so that's what people want to be. They want to be part of a group. But if you don't make it fun, because your biggest cheerleaders are going to be those individuals. And it's part of multiplying like we talked in the past. You know, we, you, Caleb, you can only do so much. Jonathan can only do so much. I can only do so much. But the real heart of all this, the real passion and the real out, you know, output that we want to create is multiplying ourselves. And that's, that's where the fun begins. Absolutely. And on the flip side of that, saying a good tactics, one people enjoy, rule number seven is a tactic that drags on too long becomes mm-hmm. a drag. Look, and if you're if you're running some type of campaign and you have people who are the best canvassers in the world, they're the folks that are really good going out, knocking on doors and holding, some, you know, conversations of substance with people. Um, they still don't want to knock on doors every day, even if that is their strength. They they want to mix it up at some point. It 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 becomes almost an obligation to think, oh, I got to I gotta go into the office today and knock on 50 doors, 50 doors tomorrow, 50 doors on Friday. Mix it up. Incentivize by saying, hey, you know what? We're actually going to do, a, I, I know you've been knocking on doors for the state Senate race. Instead, we're actually going to go to the Capitol. We're going to meet with a few state senators. Uh, we're going <clears> to <throat> meet with the state senator that we are supporting and maybe even attend a, a small luncheon with her or whatever it might be. Again, it's it's pivoting to allow folks to enjoy what, what they're doing. They definitely want to help. They want to volunteer. It's why they're there. But if you can create that environment of fulfillment, that's how not only you retain them and they show up again, but that's how they bring their friends and family members in as well. Yeah, one of the things I used to do, especially for door knockers, because it can get redundant especially if you're not by yourself. It's trying to put them in teams of threes, even fours. And so everybody would be left in the street or by a house and someone would come pick them up and then they would get all in the car and they would tell their stories. Oh my God, I just saw this. I just saw that. Or, oh my God, they slammed the door on me. Or, hey, I got to take a great person. They want more information. And so it becomes a, a teamwork effort. And before you know it, when you have three or four people in a vehicle knocking on doors, the day will go faster. Productivity rises and they actually get to have a good time and they enjoy it. And it's a great way of getting to know each other. So I would try to mix up the teams every couple of weeks, you know, put somebody new, whatever, and find out. And I would tell the 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 ones that have more experience, hey, hey, help this person out. I'm going to put somebody who's just started. So walk them through it. Give them that encouragement. You know, tell them how, to, how we do things or how things should be done and work with them and create that bond, create that leadership. Uh, and more than anything, create fun. I, when, when there's three or four people in a car when I'm knocking on doors, that's when I have the best time. Because you start to hear stories every five seconds, you know, different things come in. And and so anyway, and also for safety reasons. I'm not a fan of having people knock on doors by themselves. Unless you're a veteran, seasoned uh, individual, you should always team up. And that doesn't mean go to the door together. It just means somebody takes one street, or one side of the street, somebody takes the other side, or however you want to do it. But somebody's within five minutes in case something happens. Okay. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. You have been listening to the Grassroots Chronicles at the Yard Sign Network. Today is the first of a two-part series on Saul Alinsky. Again, and I'll be frank with you, I don't agree with Saul Alinsky on all of these rules. I don't agree with Saul Alinsky on all of his politics. But it's good to know his rules because not only will I understand what opposition's doing occasionally, but I'm, I actually like about a third to half of these rules, and I think they can be utilized successfully in any type of campaign. Uh, um, you will hear part two of Saul Alinsky coming up in, in the next episode. Um, but until then, I highly recommend hopping online and grabbing a book by Saul Alinsky, yeah. Rules for Radicals. Um, and uh, I believe you can get his book for as low as three dollars on amazon is what i saw earlier this morning so highly recommend reading uncle saul's book but we will also unpack the second half of his rules next week jonathan yes sir what's on your mind you know it again it's one of these things where the origin of all of this came from Obviously, maybe for, I would say, likely our audience, not a place that we would necessarily agree with, but you just can't deny the power and uh, uh, efficiency of these rules. And that's why we now see them uh, applied on every side of politics. Agreed, agreed. If you're a football coach, you're definitely going to want to know what the playbook is for the opposing team. So that's the key. That's the key. It is a playbook for the opposing side. And there's also a 70 something minute um, video on YouTube. And I believe it's called Sal Olinsky goes to war. Yep. Again. And it's towards the later. It's a towards the later end of his career. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's in black and white. It's on YouTube. Um, but I think it should be viewed after the book. And again, the extreme views that Alinsky has, he sort of militarizes all of his vernacular and going to war and talking about the enemy. Again, I disagree with that. It's the opposition with whom we will work on different issues in the mm -hmm. future. They're just opposition right now. Well, and if your campaign is struggling, better call Saul. <laughs> sorry i had great. to it was too easy you just put the title to the episode that's great there you go all righty you've been listening to the grassroots chronicles at the yard sign network wherever you find your podcast if it's apple itunes spotify youtube we are there we're excited to see you change your city your county your state and our country on behalf of mr producer jonathan torres uh, Mr. Grassroots, Carlos Mulatoller. I am Mr. Communication, Caleb Stokes, signing off from the Grassroots Chronicles at the Yard Sign Network.